In our study of the book of James, I'd like to say a couple of things of an introductory nature and then read the letter and then we will expound chapter one. Uh, Firstly, in relation to the letter, the date of the letter is most likely sometime before A.D. 49, A.D. 49, which would be the first or one of the first letters or books of the New Testament written before A.D. 49. And that's one question that we need to address. Another question is, who is this James who wrote the letter? Who is this James? James in this letter is most likely, according to the majority interpretation in the early centuries after the apostles, it is the half-brother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in fact, in Galatians 1.19, this James, likely the same James, he is called the Lord's brother. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Galatians 1.19. And this James was actually mentioned earlier in both the book of Mark and in the book of Matthew. Let's see Mark first. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And it says in verse... Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The James here is the Lord's brother. It looks like he's the firstborn after Christ. He is, or that we could say, the secondborn. But the firstborn of the regularly conceived, normally conceived children of Joseph and Mary. That's this James. And we also notice, by the way, the name Judas is there. This is not Judas Iscariot or any other Judas. It is the same Judas or Jude of the book of Jude. So the author, the apostle who wrote the book of Jude is likely also the brother of Christ. And then we have the same mentioned, or similarly, the same names are mentioned, but similarly mentioned in Matthew thirteen fifty-five. Matthew thirteen fifty-five, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. This is most likely the same James. And according to historians, and even a first century historian named Josephus, he was martyred, this James, was martyred in AD 62. AD 62. And so why would we date this letter before AD 49? Because the contents of the letter have similarities to the first council, the first council uh, of Jerusalem, which took place in AD 49. In Acts chapter 15, Acts 15, in AD 49, the council of Jerusalem took place. And so who was the main leader? Who was the main apostle, the main elder 
the main pastor of Jerusalem. It was James. When we read Acts chapter 15, the two primary ones centered and stationed in Jerusalem were both Peter, Simon Peter, and James. Simon Peter and James. For example, it says in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15 and verse 7, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, This is Simon Peter who stood up and spoke. And the other apostle is in Acts 15, verse 13. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. And also 14, Simeon, which is Simon Peter. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So forth. So this is the James, the Lord's brother, the same author of this epistle. The other alternative, which is unlikely, the other major alternative, is for this to be written, the letter to be written by James, the brother of John, sons of Zebedee. Remember, among the twelve apostles, there was James, the James and John, the sons of Zebedee. However, in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, he was martyred quite early, earlier than the other James, James, the half-brother of Christ. In Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. James, the brother of John. And this incident, this Herod would be Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa I, and this incident and martyrdom would have been about A.D. 44. A.D. 44, about five years before the Council of Jerusalem. And it's possible, chronologically speaking, for this James to write the letter, but he is usually not the first candidate and the obvious candidate because the one who had a longer ministry and reputation in Jerusalem and in charge of the church of Jerusalem was James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So it's likely that James and not this James, the brother of John and sons of Zebedee. His letter. Let's read his letter, which is five chapters and... Normally, these letters would be written or read in one sitting, one sitting, one occasion, in order to understand their contents. So let's read it, and then we'll come back to chapter 1 for an exposition. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind, and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves 
and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, do not, uh, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot 
desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members so as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with evil motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another 
so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. James 1 and verse 1. We spoke about his name. Now this name, let's make a brief comment about this. His name is actually originally from the name Jacob in the Old Testament. The Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the name in the Hebrew language is uh, translate, transliterated Jacob, and we pronounce it Jacob. Um, it is Yaakov from Hebrew. When it is in Greek, it becomes Yaakobus or Yaakobus in Greek and in Latin. It's that way. But in a period of time, since 2,000 years ago, between Greek and Latin, and then into European languages, especially in the French language, because the French around the 1,000 or 1,100, 1,200, they conquered um, Britain and influenced the British and the English and other languages in that region. And so their pronunciation of words and even names has come to dominate. And it's likely from Latin to French to English and even into Spanish, there is what's called linguistic corruption. Linguistic corruption. And this corruption is not moral corruption. It's speaking of linguistic corruption, uh, some de defect or deficiency in pronunciation from the original name. So this name is the same name as Jacob, where the middle consonant, dominant consonant, a Q or a K or a hard C, that has dropped out, most likely in French. And also from Latin to French, the B or the B or V sound has become an M. And that's why we have it spelled this way, J-A-M-E-S. Um, in Spanish, it's Jaime. Is that right? And it's, it's, it's Jaime. And why? Because when a Spanish speaker sees a J, they pronounce it like an H. Whereas the J in Latin is supposed to be pronounced like a Y. But in English, when we see a J, we say J. We don't use the Y sound, we use the J sound. Okay, so this is the same as that name. And so then now, back to verse 1. He identifies himself as a bondservant of God. This term bondservant may more literally be rendered slave. Translations typically tend to soften the word slave because of American history. English translations do from this point because of American history, but also European history. They tend to soften the word, 
but it is more properly the, the term slave that we should render. So James is calling himself a slave of God. And this is a common term in the New Testament. Sometimes it is rendered slave, but in reference to the apostles and disciples, often the translators will identify them as bond servants, meaning a willing slave. Like in the book of Exodus, Exodus 21, where a slave has served his master for a a time, but even though he has the opportunity for emancipation, for freedom, he chooses not to do it. He chooses to stay with his master because he loves his master and loves his family so much. He wants to stay in that environment. He knows it's better for him there with that master than to go out in the world because he knows how wicked the world is and he has a kind and loving, gracious righteous master so he wants to stay with the master that's the connotation of the apostles using this word slave of god however in the armenian sense willing means they first chose god and then god chose them but we're not saying it that way we're talking about god making us willing god who chooses us and regenerates us and then grants us faith and grants us repentance And even in the case of the master-slave analogy of Exodus 21, wasn't the master behaving graciously towards the slave? And then the slave says, I see how gracious and good and merciful you are to me. I want to stay with you. Right? It's it's an initiation from a superior to an inferior. And that's the way we should take it here. Also note that as he calls himself a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a slave of Christ. Like Jude says in Jude 1 or Jude verse 4, it says, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. James identifies himself as a slave of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's he's not embarrassed about it. He's saying it at the outset. He belongs to the Father and to the Son. And this reminds us that in church history, early after the apostles' time, this James, the brother of our Lord, the Lord's brother, Galatians 1.19, he was known as James the Just. James the Just, J-U-S-T. Just meaning righteous. Because he had a reputation in Jerusalem for having a great zeal for true righteousness. That's why he was dubbed by that name, James the Just. Well, as he's saying here, he's identifying himself as being completely devoted to his heavenly master. And if one is with that perspective, he will pursue righteousness with zeal. Verse 1 continues. He addresses the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. When he identifies the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, he is likely referring to those Jews who were dispersed already in the time of the Assyrians and the Babylonians in the Old Testament period. The Assyrians in 722 B.C. and the Babylonians in 586 B.C. These Jews were 
dispersed abroad, scattered abroad, exiled. And some of them returned, like Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah. There were some who returned, but not all of them did. Many of them remained in their foreign lands, where they were raised and they stayed there for generations. Well, they were the same ones who came, some of them, their descendants, came to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In verses 1 to 13 of Acts chapter 2, we read of the many parts of the world from where these Jews and also proselytes who are Gentiles who converted to the faith in the Old Testament period, that they came to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, an assortment from various languages from all around the world. These were Jews who were scattered abroad. Now, that was because of exile and because of upbringing. Their native places were abroad. But in terms of persecution, this happened a couple of times. In Acts chapter 8, in reference to the stoning of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, the church was scattered as a consequence of that. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Acts 8, verses 1 and 2. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But we also find in Acts chapter 11 that some of these proceeded farther. Acts eleven nineteen. Acts eleven nineteen. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. They spread even to farther away places, Phoenicia which would be on the coast, the Mediterranean coast. Antioch, which if this is um, Syrian Antioch, farther north into Syria. And then Cyprus, Cyprus would be an island on the eastern side of the Mediterranean near the land of Israel. So they were scattered even more by that point. But there was another time when there was a persecution and likely many who were scattered. And this would be in... Well, let's actually read 11.27, Acts 11.27, and into chapter 12. There's actually two events that would have caused misery and dispersion and persecution. 11.27. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death 
with the sword. So here is another two incidents. A great famine over all the world, it says, and also a persecution again because they put James, the brother of John, to death. So these would be the various reasons why James is addressing the Jewish believers in Christ who are scattered abroad. Verse 2, verses 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He first, at the outset, he tells us to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. He goes straight to the center of our attitude towards trials, towards trials, tribulations, afflictions, difficulties. He goes first to our attitude, which should be an attitude of joy, not an attitude of complaint or anxiety or grief. It should be an attitude of joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This joy, we could go back a a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. He says, Therefore... Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Christ had the the end in mind. He had the goal in mind. He knew what God the Father had in store for him to be seated at the right hand. And he had joy. He had joy in the midst of his trials. He had hostility by sinners against himself And there was no justification for it. It wasn't because of a crime or a sin. It was because of his righteousness. And if he did that, we should do that, as he's teaching us, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. He did it, so we should do it. And not only did he do it, in chapter 11, the great cloud of witnesses are all of the Christians of the Old Testament. They all did the same. If they could do it, why can't we do it? If Christ our Lord did it, why can't we do it? We should do it and do it with joy. He mentions various trials. What would these various trials be? Well, one would be lack of means, lack of daily necessities, daily resources, that is with food and covering. We shall be content. First Timothy six six to ten. 
with food and covering, with these we shall be content. That would be one, as we read at the end of Acts chapter 11, that they had a famine, a great famine over all the world. And in that kind of situation, there would be scarcity. And we understand, even from the immediate context, from verses 9 and 11, as well when we read into chapter 2, two kind of men, one rich, one poor, enters the assembly, chapter 2, 1 to 13. And then we read in chapter 4 that there were fightings and quarrelings happening among them because they don't ask God. They ask God in order to spend it on their pleasures. They don't ask God because of necessity. And in chapter 5, 5, 1 to 6, his, he's preaching against the rich who exploit the poor, right? So in that sense, when he's saying various trials, that would be one of them, not having our basic necessities or struggling with our basic necessities. He's not talking about luxury because he's condemning luxury in chapter 5, 1 to 6. He's not talking about opulence. He's not talking about asking God for that. Or if you don't have that great wealth, then you must be suffering in life. No, he's not meaning it in that way. He's talking about our basic necessities. With food and covering, with these we shall be content. That's one kind of trial. What would be another kind of trial? Another kind of trial would be the trial that's in relation to persecution. Persecution. And this persecution, why would one want to be like the rich and the powerful? So that you're not persecuted. It's not only so you can live a life of pleasure, but also to avoid persecution. Because if they are rich and powerful, they won't use their rich or their wealth and their power against you. So you can be in their good books. And everything will be just fine. Nobody will be against you and attacking you. You can avoid persecution that way. But also, a third reason would be that there is sin. Sin. The trials of sin. And this is indicative by reading verses 12 to 18. In 12 to 18, when he says... For example, in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Sin, fighting against sin. That would be another kind of trial. These are the main ones. We're not talking about here, as especially when we reach verses 5 to 8, we can ask God and he's going to give us $10 million tomorrow in the bank. Or he's going to give us great health so that we're going to live to be 133 years old. And even then, we won't die of our last disease. We'll be raptured into heaven. You know, things like this. People pray for these kinds of things to happen. For them to have health and wealth, which he condemns. We read that in chapter 4. 4, 13 to 17 He condemns that kind of thinking. It's not about health and wealth. Health and wealth are blessings, certainly, but that's not the kind of trial he's talking about here that God will answer, should answer, according to our whims. He doesn't mean it that way. Okay, then, verse 3. Knowing 
Why should we have this attitude of joy? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. When our faith is tested, it produces endurance. Endurance is a result, is a fruit of being tested. And don't we need endurance? He who endures till the end shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13. Correct? We must have endurance. If we don't have endurance, then there is no salvation. He says here in, this is Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 32. Hebrews 10, 32 to 35. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This endurance is necessary because it is a necessary component of our salvation. If there's no endurance, there is no salvation. We just said Matthew 24, 13. Hebrews also, Hebrews 3.14 says, Hebrews 3.14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Hold fast firm until the end. He uses another phrase also in verse 3. He says, The testing of your faith. The testing of of your faith. Well, why does faith need to be tested? Because he speaks of sham faith, false faith, in chapter 2. Remember chapter 2, 14 to 26? The famous faith and works section of this letter? 2, 14 to 26? Because there is such a thing as a false and fickle faith. It's false because it's not genuine, and it's fickle because it's easily tossed by the waves of the sea, the winds and the waves of the sea, double-minded and unstable in all its ways. It does not endure until the end. So the faith has to be tested. Peter speaks of this testing of faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9. He uses a different phrase here. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. He commends them for greatly rejoicing, for enduring for a little while, 
a little while compared to eternity, the distress of various trials. That's our phrase again. And he says that the proof of your faith, faith needs to be proven. It needs to be proven. That is anathema today. People, when they hear that, they say, no, I don't need to prove my faith. I've already, I have faith. You can't challenge my faith. But it says here, proof of your faith. There needs to be proof. And how is that proven? When it is tested by fire, that is thrown into the fire of affliction or into the furnace of affliction. Isaiah 48.10, the furnace of affliction. Not a real, literal furnace or fire, but affliction or trials as though they were a literal fire, but they purify us. They purge us of our impurities, sinful impurities. So afflictions have as their purpose to purify us from all impurities. Just as gold and silver is put through a literal fire to purge the gold from the impurities, from the dross. The same with us. Sin is rejected more and more that way. And that's why it's necessary to have this proven faith. We also read in verses 8 and 9 that we believe in the one and love the one that we have not seen. And we think and ponder, just like Hebrews 12 told us, Jesus did, the outcome. What is the outcome? The outcome is salvation of your souls. He says the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's what's going to help us. It's going to sustain us. If we don't have joy through afflictions, we're, we're done. Yeah. We're not going to make it. We're going to be griping and grumbling. We're going to be carping and complaining the whole time. And when we do, we're going to be sinning the whole time. Right. And we won't have the right perspective. We won't handle it in wisdom. We're going to handle it according to human wisdom, not God's wisdom. Human wisdom, which is earthly, natural, demonic. James 3.15. That's why we have to do it with joy. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18. Verse 4 continues. And let endurance have its perfect Result. Endurance will have a perfect result. Is that not what our goal is? A perfect result? We have glimpses of it. We have a foretaste of it now when we overcome sin. When we overcome the power of sin now. But ultimately our goal is 100% holiness. It's perfection in the life to come. And he who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. 1 John 3, 3. He who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is 
pure. This is what he means when he says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We, are, we become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, to the degree that we are considering the various trials with joy and considering the outcome of all the trials. The outcome of them all is the salvation of our souls. He says in 2 Peter 3, 11, 2 Peter 3, 11, the apostle, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Spotless and blameless. James is preaching the same. We ought to consider what the perfect result is so that we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Matthew 5:48 Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5:48 Perfection is the outcome in the world to come. Perfection is not for now. Now we have a struggle against sin. Those who believe that perfection is obtainable now are teaching a heresy based on human effort, based on self-righteousness, based on pharisaical legalism, who believe that they don't sin now, that either upon conversion or some point after conversion, they have become sinless. That doctrine, that heresy, is known as perfectionism or sinless perfection or sinless perfectionism. That's not what James is preaching nor Peter, nor John, nor Jesus and Matthew. They're not teaching that. They're teaching progressive sanctification, progressive perfection, not instant perfection or earthly perfection. They're not teaching that. They're teaching a struggle against sin so that we produce more and more fruits of the Spirit and we sin less and less. This is what he's describing. This is what he's Pursuing in this whole letter, progressive sanctification, no toleration, giving no quarter to any sin. For he who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. He said in 2.10, and therefore to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. He said in 4.17. So he's not giving any comfort to the flesh here. He's saying the flesh should struggle to be having this perfect result, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But he's not promising it for this life. And though that is the case, some will, some will object and say, well, if it's not possible, then it's not worth it. <laughs> well, don't athletes and others in other professions don't they strive for whatever standard 
that they have in mind, a goal they have in mind, though they know that humanly possible, it, it's not going to happen. Like an athlete who's trying to beat uh, a record, a, a hundred yard dash or the marathon or something, he's, he's trying to beat the record. So he puts a goal in front of him that's a very, very difficult goal and most likely he's never going to attain that, that goal, but he has to put it in front of him so that day by day, when he puts it in front of him, he's going to struggle, exercise, have self-discipline, self-control to get as good as he can. If they do that, and many other people do it for various other reasons, that's basically what God is describing here. But we're not alone because we are indwelled by the Spirit, the Spirit of grace. He empowers us. He enables us. He equips us. To do so. So we should pursue it like he's saying here. Then verses 5 to 8. 5 to 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If any of you lacks wisdom, when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's not meaning if and you don't, you don't have anybody like that. He means if and you do. That it is obvious that you will do so. So if you lack wisdom, we should ask of God. Wisdom. Who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This promise here, to ask God in prayer for wisdom, it doesn't say wisdom and wealth. Wisdom and notoriety. It doesn't say anything like that. But people use this verse, verse 5, to ask God for all kinds of things because it says, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. They take it out of context. They pervert the the words and the meaning of the apostle here by the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about any of that. He's asking for spiritual insight. Wisdom from above, good things from above, knowledge or wisdom, understanding, insight on how to live, whether it's for physical needs or for spiritual needs or for persecution, whatever it might be, how to have wisdom in every occasion, in every event, every circumstance of life. That's what he's saying. And God wants us to have this. Right. He wants us to have it as he's saying it right here. Who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 2 Timothy 2.7 Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Consider what I say, for the Lord will will give you understanding in everything. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Considers or esteems right, true, reliable, stable, God's precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. So how are we going to gain this understanding? 
through the Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ. It's the Word of Christ that will give us this wisdom. And the more we read, the more we meditate, the more we consult others, the teachers of the Word, to help us understand, the better we're going to have the wisdom of God. That is God's way of granting this wisdom. It's also the Holy Spirit using that means. 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 10. Well, let's actually read 2, 9 to 16. 2, 9 to 16. After explaining that the rulers of this age did not have this wisdom and they did not have this understanding, he says why. They were not predestined and the Spirit did not work in them because they were not predestined. First Corinthians 2, 9. But just as it is written, now he turns his attention mostly to the elect. 2, 9. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Isaiah 64, 4 was quoted there. Verse 10. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the promise when we seek God in God's ways, ask God according to the ways of God in his word, we will receive it. But this, one more point on verse 5, we cannot and never should ask contrary to his word. It's never contrary to his word. The scriptures we just cited are plain enough, but also we find in Proverbs 28.9, Proverbs 28.9, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law... Even his prayer is an abomination. Our prayers are an abomination if we pray contrary to what the Word of God says. Proverbs 28, 9. And how important is this? Or in what approach should we have and how important is this? Verses 6 to 8 say, But let him ask in faith. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We must ask in faith. Ask in faith. and faith in God. Not faith in faith, not faith in positive thinking, not faith in our words or the power of our words announced or pronounced 
It's not faith in anything else. Not faith in the flesh, not faith in man, not faith in the world, not faith in anything else. Not even faith in good angels helping us. It's not faith in anything except faith in God. He's already made that clear in verse 5. Let him ask of God. And Mark eleven twenty two says, have faith in God, which he reiterates in chapter 4. James 4, he says, instead you ought to say, 4, 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. If we don't have faith in God, it's all worthless. But this faith should be without any doubting. Because if there's a mingling of faith and doubt, then we are a double-minded man, unstable in all our ways. We are double-minded. And he repeats that sin in verse 8, or chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He doesn't hold back with accusations or descriptions of their sin. You sinners, you double-minded. Same in 1.8, being double-minded. Being double-minded means that you don't know, you are hesitating between two opinions, as Elijah said. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? Quit hesitating. Either God is true and right, and you should follow him, or he's not. Believe in him or not. Otherwise, you'll be like the surf of the sea, tossed here and there. And you won't get anything from God. He also says that it's instability or being unstable. Peter warns us about this. Peter says so in 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2. Verse 14, Second Peter 2, 14, having eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. False teachers entice unstable souls, those who hesitate between two opinions. 3.16, 2 Peter 3.16, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. It is no good mixing doubt with faith. It's no good because... We won't receive anything from God when we do so. We must ask in faith, be single-minded with the mind of Christ and the mind of the Spirit, and be stable, sure, with the firm foundation in Christ. Otherwise, he says, let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. We won't receive anything. Let's say with uh, the father whose son was possessed. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Let's grow in faith and not mingle it with doubt. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.